as I was working on this sermon and thinking through this story that we're going to dive right into because there's a lot to cover today, I, I started to feel like, man, I don't want to like ruin every single person's childhood sto- memory of all these stories that we grew up learning in Sunday school, uh, watching the VeggieTales videos of and by telling you the details the VeggieTales left out. Uh, because that's kind of what I'm doing, and, 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 I, and I, I, I realized that, re- like, especially with this one today. Uh, and today I'm going to paint a picture for you uh, of, a, of, a, of a story. Of, I'm going to paint a picture of something that, quite frankly, is very, very disturbing. Uh, it's a very dark story. It's a gruesome story. A lot of stuff happens that you don't really expect to happen. It's very cinematic. It's very violent. It's sexual. It's... Because it's telling us what happens. Sometimes that's what the Bible is doing. Sometimes the Bible is a story of something that took place in history and it's just telling us about it. That's what today kind of is. Uh, not, not, but we have to understand that just because it happened and just because it's recorded and just because it's in the Bible, it doesn't mean that it's good what took place. And I want you guys to understand that going in. And that's the book of Esther. Okay, so we're going to talk about Esther today. And I want to start off, before we even get into this, before we read a single scripture, I want us to ask ourselves a question this morning. Especially with everything been going on in the world this week, uh, everything politically, everything going on here and there, and he, he, this, 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 and that, right? I want us to ask this one question, and that's, do I trust God? Okay? Do you trust God? Like really, truly, deeply, at your core, fully, do you trust him? Do you believe he has your best interests at heart? Do you believe that he can do anything? Do you believe that he can work through anybody, even the most broken people, even the most broken circumstances? Do you believe that he can overpower even the biggest empires and the biggest evils and even overcome the most awful and worst circumstances that may be happening in your life? Do you believe that? Do you trust God? And before we get into Esther, I actually, this morning, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I want us to read this morning a passage not in the book of Esther. And we're going to get, then we're going to get into Esther, and we're going to spend the whole morning talking about it, because it's, it's very loaded. Uh, but again, it's going to be a very bizarre morning. But I want us to start by reading a warning that the Apostle Paul wrote to his apprentice, Timothy. And it is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. This is what... Paul says to Timothy, he says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be, see if any of this sounds familiar, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, I think I said that twice, I'm sorry, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, Swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Let's pray. Jesus, God, we thank you, Lord, that you are on the throne no matter what happens in this world. Every single day of our lives, we can count on and rely on you. No matter how broken things may get, no matter how bad things may seem, we know that we can trust you, God. And we can trust you, Jesus, that your blood is more powerful than anything else that ever existed in this entire world. Lord, we just ask right now that you would just be evident today in this place, Holy Spirit, that you would fill this room and that you would only, that I would only say the things that you would have me to say and that everything else would fall to the ground before it ever even comes out of my mouth. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So did you know, and you probably don't know if you never studied this book, but did you know that the book of Esther never, even one time, mentions God? 
only book in the entire Bible that doesn't ever mention God at all. Like nobody calls on the name of God. Nobody asks God for anything. Never once does God speak to anyone the entire time. It would appear that God is just not there in the book of Esther. The book of Esther is also never mentioned in the New Testament. So Jesus doesn't quote Esther. The Apostle Paul doesn't talk about Esther. The writer of Hebrews doesn't count Esther as a mighty woman of faith who saved the Israelites. She's not in there. Even Samson made that list, and Esther's not in there. She's just, she's not there. And this is what makes this really interesting to me when I'm thinking about the book of Esther on like a timeline of like what was going on uh, when this story took place. See, the story takes place when Israel is in exile. Okay? When they're, as far as Israel can tell, they've been taken into exile. The Babylonian government exiled them. Uh, so as far as they can tell, God wasn't there. God had left. He had abandoned them. He had given them over. He is not here. But the, so that's what happened to Israel. And then by, by the time we get to Esther, they're still in exile. But something had changed in the exile that actually was starting to show them, hey, there might be some hope here. There actually could be some hope for us. Because what was happening was Israel was taken into captivity by Babylon, okay? But then the Persian Empire, under the leadership of Cyrus the Great, actually defeated and overthrew the Babylonian Empire while Israel was still in captivity to them. And then Persia, they took control of that empire and they actually allowed the Jews to leave. They didn't make them stay all in one place. So before that, all the Jews had to stay in one place. They were in Babylon. They were in exile. Persia comes in, and they actually let them go wherever they want to go, but they're still under control of Persia. So this is the day we're in for Esther. So some people went home. Some people stayed. Some went to new places. It's what was called the diaspora, or the dispersion of the Jews. So they weren't being held captive to one certain place anymore, but they were still under the rule of the Persian government. And so Esther and her family, they did not go back to Jerusalem like some of the Jews did. Instead, they they lived in a place called Susa. It's the capital of Persia. It's now modern-day Shush in, um, in Iran. That's where it would be today. But the problem with that is as they're in this culture, and the more and more they lived amongst the Persians, the more like the Persians they started to become which is somewhat poetic in and of itself, at least the way that I can see it, because all throughout the Old Testament, we've been talking this whole time about the Old Testament, what are the Jews supposed to do? They're supposed to be set apart. So what is the great sin that the Jews commit against God every single time? They are not set apart. They assimilate into other cultures and they yoke themselves to other gods. Okay? God calls them to be a set apart and to worship him, yet they worship other gods. They follow other cultures. So that was kind of the sin of the Old Testament. They're called to be different. Instead, they end up being products of the environments that they're in. So when we meet Esther and her older cousin Mordecai, uh, who Mordecai raised Esther because she was actually an orphan, and so her cousin raised her, um, uh, it tells us that they're Jewish right from the beginning, but it tells us that it makes it very clear that they have no problem going along with much of the Persian culture and what was going on in their culture. So they're under the reign in that day of a king named Xerxes in the Persian Empire. And the story begins with an enormous party that King Xerxes uh, threw. He really knows how to throw a party. This one is described as being six months in already. It's been six straight months of just party, 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 party. That's a long party. Uh, They've been partying for a long time. And now that may seem totally unrealistic. It may seem strange. And he definitely took it pretty far. But it's very important to note this. I know this is just a little context so you can get kind of what's going on here. But they're leading the charge on trying to take over the world, okay? And the the book of Esther actually begins by saying that King Xerxes, uh, he reigned from India all the way to Ethiopia. Over 127 provinces he was the king of, and they were taking over more. And when you're trying to take over the entire world, yes, you do use military force when you have to and when it's necessary, but the goal is not to kill everybody. The goal is to convert everybody. The goal is to convert everybody everywhere else so that they will call you king. The more people who call you king, the more power that you have. So these extravagant parties 
were actually meant to be a demonstration of what life under Xerxes was like. It was fun. It was a party. It was not oppression. It was drinking and a good time. See, that's what made one of the things that made the Persian Empire different than the Babylonians or different from some of the other ones like Assyria is the Persian Empire wanted you to feel like you're free, even if you're not free. So like, for instance, when it comes to the gods you worship, they would let you worship your gods, but you have to understand that your god is, as long as you agreed, your god is in a pool of gods. Like there are many gods, it doesn't have to, you're not the only god. As long as you consider your god one of them, you could worship him. It's very similar today, right? You can say, you can say, you can have your god, you can have your truth, but you can't put that on me and you can't say that that's the real truth because ultimately there is no truth and it's just true for you, it's not true for me, right? That's kind of our culture, that was kind of their culture. That's our world today. Now, to conclude this huge party he has, the king threw a feast that would last seven days. So a long party. We're going to end it with an enormous feast, seven days long. And the Bible says that when the king's heart was merry with wine, okay, so he was drunk out of his mind, the king calls for his wife to come to the party and to be the entertainment for his guests. And we don't really know what this means. Some people think it means, oh, they wanted to, like, dance for everybody, or they wanted her to, like, says that she's very beautiful. So what the Bible says, so they're like, what, what does this display entail? How much showing is being done? We don't really know. But at any rate, what we do know is whatever it was, the, king, the queen decided, I'm not doing that. I'm not willing to be the object of your drunken attempt to entertain your friends. So she simply says, no, I don't want to do it. I won't be your entertainment. I won't go. And the king is absolutely humiliated by this. He's just so upset. I mean, we're talking about a guy who he reigns 127 provinces, right? He has a lot of people under him looking up to him, and his wife just publicly shamed him and said, no, he's very displeased. And then this is what happens, okay? All of the men approach the king, all of the men in the land, and they're like, dude, like, you need to get a hold of your wife. You need to control her. Like, you need to get a handle on her. She's the queen, and she's setting this example for all of our wives and all the women in the land that you can just say no to your husband. And if you let her get away with that, then every woman in every household is going to think it's okay to say no to their husbands. They didn't like that. It's very, very obvious from just a very simple overview reading of this book that this was, a, this was a society in which men lorded over women. And yet we're going to find that it's the women in this story who God ends up using to bring justice and really some order to a very corrupt government. So in order to set an example to the, all of the women across the land that you don't say no to men and you live in submission to them, the king actually divorced his wife and said, okay, we're going to find a new queen. We will find a new queen. There's a lot to this story, so I know you just hang on. I was like, wow, this is, there's a lot going on already. And what happens next is absolutely one of the most disgusting things that happened in all of history as far as I'm concerned. They gather all of the virgins, okay? And some scholars would say it was many as a thousand or more virgins, young girls, and they prepare each of these girls to have one night intimately with the king, okay? And whichever of these girls in this night pleases the king the most gets made queen. So there's a, a contest for who's going to be queen. Now, now, notice this. In an effort to elevate her position, again, I don't want to destroy your heroes for you, but Esther joins the competition. In fact, her husband Mordecai actually encourages her. her. He raised her, and he's like, dude, you need to do this competition. Now, this right here is kind of the first place that we see clear as day that you begin to become whatever it is that you connect yourself most to. Whatever culture you give yourself over to, you will eventually begin to become like that. Esther was Jewish, Okay? And that meant something in that day. The Jews had very strict laws about marriage, very strict laws about sexuality. Yet as slaves in Persia for so long, it became very easy to take part in whatever the currency of Persia is. And this is how you stay ahead in this kingdom. So this is what they do. So this, this move, which I will say from the beginning of the sermon, God does use it. Okay? God does use it. God brings beauty for ashes. God can create a mi miracles out of your bad choices, out of my bad choices. He can do that. 
But God, he uses Esther through it, but there is something fundamentally wrong when a child of God gives herself to a worldly system in order to gain influence in that system. Okay? The way of Jesus is upside down and it is countercultural. It is the opposite of the way that the world works. So in this world, and I know this is kind of troubling, but research will tell you, just for example, even today in this world, as much as we want to resist this reality, the fact is in our world, take Jesus out of it, change takes place from the top down. This is ultimately how it takes place. As much as we want to fight against it, research will tell you, historical history will tell you, this is how you change things. Right? When powerful people get in positions, like the one that Esther is seeking, then when those people want things to change, it starts to change. But that is not the way of Jesus. That's not the way that it works in the kingdom of God. But listen, like this is more obvious to me right now than it has ever been. And this is why I get a little bit frustrated when Christians overemphasize politics. I think the Christians should be involved in politics. Don and I were talking about this last night. Like We need to have people in these arenas. We need to be doing that, right? But but the reality is, is the world systems are not changed the way ours, the wor- that Jesus is going to change the world. The world systems are changed by the people on the top. And because of that, Christians think they have this thought that says, okay, I'm going to help usher in the kingdom of God by positioning the right people in places of power. And it makes sense logically, but it's not the biblical model for how the world will be done. One, so we basically create this ladder, right? And the idea is simple. Like you go into politics or any other arena of influence that you might go into so you can work your way to the top. And Christians are just as much a part of this. Like, okay, I'm going to do this, right? Because I'm thinking if I can get there, then then when I get there, I can enact the change I've always believed in. So you try to climb the ladder. And just, I know that this clip art is really, really stupid looking, but um, the red guy is kind of meant to be the person involved in the kingdom of God. The green represents the world just for this sake, okay? So hang with this, okay? This is not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of the kingdom of God. We hear in, in the Bible, God could, Jesus could have come as a lion, right? In, in Revelation, everybody's saying, behold the lion. Look, and then John looks over, but he doesn't see a lion, he sees a lamb, okay? Because Jesus actually came. He had the power of a lion, but he chose to come as a lamb to be slaughtered on our behalf. The Bible says that Jesus could have called down 12 legions of angels to rescue him from the enemy. Instead, he let the oppressive government murder him for our sake. When Pilate asked Jesus, he says, hey, Jesus, are you a king? As in, basically, he's saying, hey, are you going to actually be a threat to the Roman government? This is what Jesus says. He says, my kingdom is not from this world. He says, from. He's not from this world. Which we tend to envision as something like this. Right? Like we have the kingdom of God totally off in outer space somewhere. God is there. The world is here. And, so, and someday we get to go there. But until then, we just sort of hide here. Like we don't, want, we don't really get involved in anything. We just sort of hide out. We be, you, you know, we, we, that way we don't hurt anybody. or we, we, don't, we don't hurt ourselves or get involved in the wrong crowd. Right? Now obviously that's not the gospel either. But you get a little closer to it if you think of it this way. So if you can think of the, what Jesus said more like this, because essentially he said things like this. This is a summary of some of the things he said throughout his life. Jesus basically said, I'm not trying to take over this world system. I am instituting another one right here in the middle of this one. So then we start to view it like this, which is closer, but it's still wrong. See, even this, like the kingdom of God being a world inside a world like this, is still, it's a sheltered off world to itself that's healthy and it's alive and it's awesome in the midst of a world that's dying. But I would tell, dare say it this way, I would say that the kingdom of heaven on this earth actually is supposed to look more like this. And I'm going somewhere with all this bad clip art. I really am. See, this is, it's supposed to be an intermingling where you're shoulder to shoulder with people, but you're still the light of the world. Okay? That's what made the dispersion so powerful, even though a lot of people got it wrong. A lot of the Jews got this wrong. But when Persia let Israel go anywhere they wanted to go, suddenly God's people began to spread out into different cities and even to different countries all over the place. And so we talked about the Ten Commandments, right? Two weeks ago, a little bit uh, last week. We think the Ten Commandments are evil. We think that the Ten Commandments are bad, right? But they they were written on behalf of Israel, for Israel, and it was a covenant, right? And that covenant is what is what 
caused them to stand out because it was a very different way of life than the rest of the world. Okay? So the covenant that they had with God caused them to stand out in a world that did things very, very differently than what the Jewish people did. And then, of course, when we get to the New Testament and it becomes about Jesus and Jesus becomes the center of it, it gets even more powerful. Like when the government in Acts, right? The government in Acts speaks of the, of the apostles and he's saying, we're looking for Paul, we're looking for Cyrus. These guys turned the whole world upside down. Okay? They turned the whole world upside down and, and, and everybody's like, okay, how, how did they do that? How did they do that? This is what they said. This is what the government says about the apostles. He says, they turned the world upside down because and they, were, they confessed Jesus. Okay? They confess Jesus a different king than Caesar. But what people fail to understand is he's also a king of a different kingdom than Caesar. You do not bring Caesar down by becoming Caesar. Okay? You don't change the world by becoming the world. Because the world's systems do not last. They've never lasted. Babylon took captive, took Israel captive. Persia comes in, wipes out Babylon. No more Babylon. Persia eventually fell. Rome built the greatest empire the world had ever seen at the time. They even killed Jesus during this. Bam, they're gone. Empires fall. But when they reigned, right, when Rome reigned, and they were controlling people through violence, and they were killing people who confessed anyone other than Caesar as Lord, we get Jesus coming onto the scene saying, the meek will inherit the earth. Which, to me, that's like this guy, the guy at the very, very bottom, the guy who's restraining his strength, and he's, he's, he's at the bottom. But you know what? Everything in this gospel is going to get turned on its head because the meek are the ones that are going to get the earth. It's upside down. When God puts his hand on something, you have to hear this, or when God puts his hand on someone, there is no culture, there is no king, there is not even an empire that can stand in his way of what he wants to do and what he's going to do. You only have to look to world history to see that. That somehow even today, how are the Jews still standing? Honestly, every oppressive government, even in the 20th century, that was their goal. Let's destroy the Jews, this little group of people that to this day is still standing. And every empire that ever attacks them has fallen. Every single one. Most of them are extinct today because God and his plan is simply bigger than any empire that could ever rise up. Yet human nature and our desires, when we see the world and we're trying to change it, because it's good to want to change the world, it's good to want influence and we should do that, but our nature is to not trust God. And it's to try to do it in our own way, even though he has a very specific different way. Which, when we act on that, it leaves us looking no different than the world. We just blend in with the world. And we don't actually do any good in the world. And this is what was going on in Esther. So yes, it makes sense that Esther would play the king's game to gain influence because she'd been assimilated into that way of life and she had bought into the lie that if I'm going to be anything to anyone here, I have to climb that ladder. But just because it positioned her for something powerful, and it does, it does not make it right. And in this tense political climate that we've been in for the last few years, and everything that's been going on this week and everything leading up to that, I just want to remind you that the world system is not overcome by the way that we wish that it would be. It's not. But the world system is also not the final word in our world. Nor is it our job to change the entire thing. We can work for change. That's a good thing to do, but it's different. See, Jesus did not overthrow Rome. Jesus comforted the people who were being oppressed by Rome. Very big difference. He stood up to them. He called them, he stood up for them. He stood up for the people. He called those people blessed. And he showed them another kingdom does exist right in the middle of this one. And in this kingdom, everybody's welcome. And in this kingdom, the poor are blessed. The meek get the earth. Mercy will always circle back onto you. There are safe places for people when you are persecuted for the name of Jesus. Guys, the church's job in a world that is very, very broken is to be a kingdom right in the midst of that broken world. It would look more like that. A kingdom that is love. That meets people where they are and that teaches them that even if the world has counted them out, even if the world has counted them as lost, that Jesus still loves them enough to die for them. 
The church's job in a world that is totally broken is to be people who are not sharing the love of God to a world that doesn't need to be this. It's done differently, though. It's, it's, it's our job to show people what Jesus looks like. And, and I don't want to be discouraging, but we're not, the church in general is not going to win the culture war. That doesn't mean we can't shape culture, but the world's never going to look like this. It's not, not, in, not this side of Jesus returning. Jesus makes that very, very clear. It's just not the way it's going to look. That doesn't mean we won't help shape culture. That doesn't mean that we're not going to make influences and make positive changes. But ultimately, the church will always be a counterculture. So you've got to understand that whenever you face our world, thinking that you're going to change it. It's, it let's work for it. Let's be advocates. Let's stick up for the broken and the lost. And let's reach people. But the more we think that it's our job to change the whole world in that way, the more we will become like it in our efforts to do it. That's what happens in our story. So Mordecai tells Esther in the story, he says, hey, let's do, I want you to join this contest. But he tells her something very, very strange. He says, don't tell anyone you're Jewish. Don't tell anyone that you are Jewish. And so the preparation for this one night with the king, it actually lasted an entire year. So like they are like, getting these girls ready for this. And she has one night to prepare for this one moment. And the Bible says that Esther won favor with everybody everywhere she went. And to make a long story very, very short, Esther wins the contest. They put a crown on her head. They call her the queen. So now Esther's queen, and she has the ear to the king. And something very interesting happens. There's a couple of the king's uh, eunuchs, and they become very angry at the king. Wonder what a eunuch would possibly be angry about. I don't know, but they got mad about something. We don't know what it was. We have ideas, uh, and they uh, they develop a plan to attack the king, to hurt the king, to kill the king. And Mordecai actually overhears this plan. He hears about this plan, and he tells Esther about it, who then tells the um, the king. And when they investigate it, they find it to be true. So the two eunuchs are put to death, and Mordecai essentially saves the king. They record this instance in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king, but Xerxes very, very soon forgot about it. He just go on with his life. Okay, cool, we're good. Not long after that, Xerxes promotes a man named Haman the Agagite to be his right-hand man. Now, whenever the writer of Esther refers to Haman, he always, most of the time, the writer says Haman the Agagite. It's very similar to what we read about with Ruth. Like, we're, intentionally, we're saying Ruth is a Moabite. There's a reason we are intentionally telling you that. Haman is an Agagite. That's very, very clear. Haman the Agagite. And Haman the Agagite loves power. And one day he comes out to the king's gate and everybody's bowing down to him because he's the second in command and the king told everybody to bow down to him. So they're doing that. But Mordecai, who's also at the gate, is not bowing to him. In fact, day after day after day, this continues. Haman comes out. Mordecai won't bow. So the king's servants, they, they tell Haman, hey, he's not bowing. And he even told us why he wasn't bowing, which I don't know why he told them this. But he, so Mordecai said, I'm not going to bow because I'm Jewish. So I'm not going to bow to Haman because I'm Jewish. Then watch what happens um, after this. Haman is just really, really mad about this. And, uh, th- and this is what he says. This is what it says in uh, 3 verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, they made known that he was Jews, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. Every single one of them, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So Haman is so mad about this one Jewish guy that won't bow down to him. He says, I'm going to annihilate the entire race. I'm going to make this dude's entire race pay for what he did. I'm going to destroy all the Jews. Which, like we said, history has told you. Anybody who tries to do that, it never ends up going well for them. So Haman the Agagai approaches the king. And rather than just focus on Mordecai and what Mordecai did to him, he paints this picture of a very specific people group who does not follow the laws of the king. Who kind of makes their own way in the land. And what he does is he kind of plays off of Xerxes' um, kind of ego and his love for power. And Haman says, dude, you shouldn't tolerate that. 
You shouldn't, you shouldn't just let them live amongst those people. So Haman proposes the most absurd plan probably in the whole Bible. He says, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which to us would be December 13th, but in that culture, it would be more around like March, early March, mid-March. So he, he says, on the, 12th, the 13th day of the 12th month, all of the Jews, men, women, children, all of them were to be annihilated. So we say, we're going to set out a decree, everybody kill all the Jews on this day. And for whatever reason, the king hands Haman his signet ring, which is how you sign an irreversible law into, into law. So they signed it into law, and on the 13th day of the 12th month, everyone was allowed for that one day to kill the Jews. I want to read you one verse in particular that stuck out to me when I was reading this. It's, it's, it's verse 315. It, it says this. So the decree had already gone out to the land, and it says, The king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. See, at the top, the oppressors were enjoying themselves. At the top, they felt really good about themselves. Their hearts were getting merry. They were drinking. While the world that they saw, the world that they led and and oversaw was thrown into a state of confusion. And it doesn't just say that just the Jews were confused. It says everyone was confused. People did not understand why all of a sudden they were being told to kill their neighbors. Some definitely rejoiced because the Jews had a lot of enemies. But there was a sense in the air of this is not right. What's being told us to do is not right. And, and, I, and I want you guys to hear this from me, for what it's worth. It is normal, it is okay, and it is understandable, and it's really, quite frankly, your obligation to not just always go along with whatever people tell you to do. With whatever your authorities tell you to do, whatever I tell you to do, whatever the government tells you to do, whatever anybody tells you to do. There will be times in your life, or there may be times at least in your life, where you're going to have to stand up to the empire in order to stand by the marginalized. And there will come a day when you're going to have to draw a line in the sand and determine where does my loyalty really lie? Is it with our country? Is it with God? Is it with Jesus? Is it with the church? Where does my loyalty lie? And on that day, I hope you choose Jesus. Jesus tells us, I'm going to send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Okay, we're very familiar with that passage. But the temptation is to align ourselves with the wolves so that we don't get eaten by them. That's always been the temptation. So this is what's going on here. The king and Haman, they're drinking while the whole city's in confusion. But by this time, of course, Esther is now queen. And of course, still at this time, Esther is Jewish, because once you're Jewish, you're Jewish. And, but she didn't tell anybody that she's Jewish. So the king has no idea that he issued his wife's death order amongst other people. And so Mordecai, when Mordecai hears the news, he sends word to Esther, and he says, Esther, you are the queen. You got to do something. You have been put in a position to save our people from destruction, and you have, you're the queen. You have his ear. You need to say something. You need to do something. But here's where it gets a little bit complicated. Esther replies, and this whole thing is taking place over correspondence. So like, I know we're about to read a very famous passage, and we think it's like a, a motivational speech, but really it was just in a letter. Um, but this is what happens. It, it, Esther responds to Mordecai, and she's like, dude, cousin Mordecai, anyone, you know the law, anybody who approaches the king when the king does not ask to be approached, if he doesn't right away... Um, if he doesn't right away extend to you his scepter uh, and say, hey, you're welcome to talk to me, then instantly you get, you'll be killed. You can't just approach the king, even me, even the queen. I'm not allowed to do that. Oh, and by the way, the king hasn't asked to see me in over 30 days. It's been a very long time. She explains that this could get me killed. And then it's at that that we finally get to uh, this passage that uh, Mordecai responds, and again, it it's, makes it sound like it's a motivational speech, but really it took place right uh, there over letter. And this is what it says, and it's, it's 4.13 through 14, and it says this. Mordecai says to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all of the other Jews. 
For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Esther agrees. And then we get the most spiritual thing we get in the entire book. She says, call a fast. Just that's all she says. Call a fast. I'll fast. I'll have my women fast and then I'll go to the king. And then she says this. If I perish, I perish. And it's here. And really only here that a character in the story, any character, truly reflects the heart of Jesus. For even a moment. And the type of life that we are in fact called to model here on this earth. One that would lose, is willing to lose everything for the sake of the people that we love. No greater love has anyone than this that he would lay down his life for his friends. So we're going to move very quickly through this. So Esther approaches the king. And the king extends the golden scepter and he asks Esther, what is your request? Even up to half of my kingdom, I will give you anything that you want. Tell me what you want. And this is what she does. She says, I want to have a meal. I want to have a banquet with you and Haman, just the three of us. It's actually already ready. It's already been prepared. Let's eat. So they call for Haman and they have this meal. The three of them sit down and they're eating and they're drinking and they're having a great time. And again, the king says, what do you want, Esther? Anything up to half my kingdom, it is yours. Just say it. So Esther, instead of just saying it, she actually asks for a second banquet. She's like, hey, how about tomorrow? Let's have another banquet just like this. I'm really enjoying this fellowship. Like, let's do this tomorrow again. Which seems really strange. Like, it seems like she could have probably settled this in this instant. But she didn't. She said, let's have another banquet. The king grants the request. They all go home. And then the story shifts to Haman. And, and Haman goes home. And the Bible says he's leaving the palace. And as he's leaving, he's excited. He's happy. His heart is glad. He gets to hang out with the king and the queen. He's obviously gr- growing in his power and his ranks. And then he sees Mordecai. And just that seeing Mordecai, he becomes angry and he is reminded of how much Mordecai disrespected him. How mean Mordecai was to him. So Haman is at home and he's sharing with his family. He's like, dude, I had the best day ever. And the whole thing is worthless because of Mordecai. He says this, even Queen Esther, let nobody else come to this banquet besides me. And tomorrow I'm invited to another one. Yet all of this is, look, all of this is worth nothing as long as I have to look at this Mordecai guy. At the king's gate. Everything as, is worthless as long as he is there. So his family tells him, he says, okay, this is what you do. You build gallows, 50 cubits high. Build them in the front yard. Build them right now. Huge gall- gallows. We're going to hang him. Then say this. Uh, then go to the king. Ask for permission to hang him tomorrow before the banquet so you can hang Mordecai. And then you can have an enjoyable meal and not have to think about that guy who didn't bow to you and he was mean. So Haman had the gallows built that night, which certainly leads us to a complication because Esther had the king's ear earlier that day and she didn't say a thing. Instead, she asked for another banquet the next day. And now Haman, he's planning on killing Mordecai before the banquet. So for Mordecai, death was now imminent. For the rest of the Jews, it was coming soon at the hand of this Agagite. Now, you don't need to turn there, but if you were to go back to 1 Samuel 15, there's a little battle that's recorded uh, there where, uh, between Israel and the uh, uh, Amalekites. And I don't know if it was a little battle, but it was a battle. It's probably a very big battle. And it's another one of those passages that it's a ton to explain. I'm not even going to try to explain the details for you today. I just want to point something out to you. Okay? The Bible says that, records that God told Saul in this battle to wipe out everything, not to take any prisoners, not to let anybody go, not to spare anybody, not to take any crops, not to take any uh, cattle, not to take anything. Okay? But Saul is very, very bad at listening to God. So he got rid of everybody, but he spared one person. He spared the king. And then he took the sheep, the best sheep, the fatted calves, all the stuff that he wasn't supposed to take. So Saul, who is the king of Israel, same Israel we're talking about in the story, disobeyed God. Spares the king. Do you know what the king's name is? King Agag. The sole survivor in his family. And who he eventually was killed, but before he was killed, he was able to continue his family line. And now, generations later, we have Haman, the Agagite, threatening the the extinction of all of the Jews, the descendants of Saul. Okay, so Saul didn't do what he was supposed to do. All of his grandchildren... 
everybody that he oversaw about to be annihilated. Genocide awaited them all on the 13th. Imminent death by gallows for Mordecai the next day. Because nobody did what God told them to do. And so this, at this moment, this is where God has to show up. So King Xerxes that night, he can't sleep. He's just, I can't sleep tonight. He doesn't know why. Something's just keeping him awake. So he gives orders to bring the book of memorable deeds. And he has his servants begin to read to him these memorable deeds. And in reading the deeds, they came to the one about the two angry eunuchs who plotted against the king. And this guy Mordecai, who actually saved the king. And the king says, well, what have we done to honor Mordecai? What have we done to... um, Thank him for what he had done. And they said, we haven't done anything for him. We forgot all about him. You forgot all about him. And so the king's like, okay, who's in the court right now? We got to do something. What can we do? Someone has to do something. And just then, Haman walks in. And he's prepared to ask the king for permission to go kill Mordecai that morning. And, but before he could ask his question, the king asks him a question. The king asks Haman. He says, Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman He's sitting there, and he's thinking to himself, well, who would the king be more delighted in than me? I'm the man. Like, I, this is, I'm, I'm going to all the banquets with his wife. It's, uh, we got this thing. He has to be talking about me. So he gets stoked, and he gets wide-eyed. And this is what he says in verse 7 through 9. If you just follow along on the screen with me. And Haman said to the king, I'm going to say, hold on a second. Say, so, so for the man whom the king delights to honor, or yeah, so he asked him, so, for the man who the king delights to honor, let the royal robe uh, be brought, which, has the, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on those whose head the royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horses be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress, let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, And let them lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. See, Haman, at this point, he thought that he was building his throne. But really, he was digging his grave. It goes on to say this in verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said. And do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you mentioned. So Haman has to go, and he takes the robes, and he takes the horse, and he dresses up Mordecai. And he marches him around the city, shouting, Thus shall it be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. Mordecai is honored for saving the king. And when he had finished this, Haman, he panics, and he runs home, and he tells his family what had happened, and his family's basically like, dude, you lost, you're done, it's over, you don't, you don't have a chance. And while he's talking to his family, the king's eunuchs come to pick him up for that banquet that Esther had asked to go to, a banquet that he no longer was excited about attending. And the king asked during the second feast, once again, Esther, what do you want? It is up to, up to my kingdom, up to half my kingdom, I will give to you. And she lays it all in seven Uh, Verse 3 through 6. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. For if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. But for our affliction... But our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Uh, So the king said to Esther, who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy. This wicked Haman. And Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And he began to beg Esther for his life. One of the king's servants comes out. The king's furious. And one of the servants comes out and says, Hey, King, uh, king Xerxes, there's their gallows, 50 cubit uh, gallows in Haman's front yard that he built to hang Mordecai on, the guy who saved you. And the king responded, Hang him on that. And Haman the Agagite was hung on the very gallows that he had built to hang Mordecai on. The story concludes this way. 
Esther, again, asked the king for help. He said, king, you got to revoke this command that Haman the Agagite set into motion. But the king says, unfortunately, I can't do that. It was with my signet ring. It's kind of one of those things, like once it's signed, it's kind of stuck. You're kind of stuck with it. we got to do something else. So instead, he gives Esther the signet ring and said, you can make a new law. So what he does is he says, okay. So, the, the, so Esther issues a new decree with a new law saying, if anyone does go after the Jews that day, though they are within their law to do so, the Jews are now also within the law to defend themselves. So when that day comes and the people who hated the Jews rose up to overtake the Jews, the Bible says that the reverse actually occurred and the Jews overtook their enemies. The Jews gained mastery over those who had hated them that day and they defeated the enemy. The book ends the same way that it starts, with a giant party. They inaugurated something called the Feast of Purim, which still exists to this day, as a reminder that God is bigger than our biggest adversary. That if God is for us, then who can be against us? The Jews overcame the Persian Empire, and the Jews are the ones who are still standing here today. Because when God says that he's going to do something, he always does it. He'll do it. And finally, Mordecai is promoted next to Xerxes, the right hand, in the place of Haman. Mordecai gets Haman's job. Now you may wonder, why did we read the passage from a letter that the Apostle, John, or Apostle Paul wrote to his apprentice Timothy at the beginning of this passage? Before learning about Esther. Paul warns that times are going to get more and more and more and more and more and more difficult. They're going to get hard. People are going to care about all the wrong things. They're going to try to make changes in all the wrong ways. People will be brutal toward one another in order to get what they want. They're even going to look to be godly sometimes. But they're going to deny the power. And I read that line differently this week as I was studying it, and it reframed some of this for me a little bit. See, when we claim that we love Jesus... What, and we say, hey, we're Christians. We say Jesus is Lord. We have a form of godliness, as some translations put that. Some translations put uh, 2 Timothy 3.5 as you have a form of godliness, but you deny its power. And I always used to read that kind of categorically. Like one part of our life is godly. In this form, we're good. But other parts still need some work. But the translation we read today actually did a much better job when it said an appearance. It's the Greek word morphosis. An even better translation would be a semblance. As in, on the outside, it looks like we believe this, but reality actually tells us something different. We certainly have a picture of godliness that we portray with our lives, but it's just an image. No matter what we claim with our lips, when we live our lives as if the change that we are believing for is going to come from any place other than the way that the gospel describes it coming, we are denying its power. Power is the Greek word dunamis. Power is a great translation, or you could say it like this. You are denying its ability. You deny by the way that you live your life that you actually believe that God has the ability to do what he promised he would do in your life. That he needs us to conform and put our trust into a system that he's not even a part of. He can still work through it. He obviously did work through it in Esther and in a lot of other stories. But it is not his system. It is not his system. The way of Jesus, the way that truly turned the world on its head, it turned its world on its head because it did not make sense, and yet it kept growing, yet it had power, yet it was changing people's lives from the ground up, from the bottom to the top. In these days, people will slander us. They will be unholy. They'll even be heartless. It's all in there. 2 Timothy 3.3, people will be heartless. Like, do you even care, even a little bit, even one ounce about anybody but yourself? That's the world that Paul warns Timothy of. And that's the world we're living in today. And we can fall victim to being on the wrong side of Paul's warning here if we live our lives just subtly denying that God is more powerful than, or denying, denying the reality that God is actually more powerful than the systems that seem to be making all of the decisions. God is more powerful than that. Ultimately, the story of Esther is a story of a God that is bigger than the systems. 
It's a story about a God who is moving even when sometimes it seems like he's silent. It's a story about how God can take all of the broken pieces of your life and all the things that you've let define you over time and all the things that you've let drag you down and rob you of your purpose. God can take all that. Esther teaches us that God can take all that and breathe so much life into your mistakes that it literally will propel you to your purpose. He's not beyond doing that. Guys, God in this story, he took a mistake, an awful mistake, and he turned it into a such a time as this moment for a woman who lied to get to the top. See, here's the problem. When we read the Bible as if all of the characters that God seems to bless are our heroes, if we set them up on that pedestal, they become out of our reach. And the reality is, is they're not out of our reach. It can be very easy for us in our own lives to conclude that the things that we've done wrong mean that we cannot get to God anymore, that God cannot use us anymore because we read stories like Esther and we think that she followed God's every step, but she didn't. Esther didn't follow the plan that God dreamed of for her life. Esther made her own way and God had to clean the entire thing up. Esther slept with the king for a chance to be queen. Esther lied about who she was. She played the world's systems. And by us only focusing on the way that she saved the Jews, she becomes an idol. Someone that we can look up to thinking that she achieved some sort of glory that we never will. But the story of Esther is not about a girl who did something right. It actually shows us that she did a whole lot wrong, but God still showed up. He never gave up on her. And through that, Esther grew and grew and grew. She got better. She took a stand. She put herself in the gap between the oppressor and the marginalized, and God moved in a mighty way. But the story is not about a girl who rose to power and eventually saved God's people. The story is about a God that never gave up on his people, ever, and he'll never give up on you. God promised Abraham that from his seed, he would build a great nation. God promised the line of David that from your seed, I will give you the Messiah. And he's not about to let some tyrannical, power-hungry leader wipe out all of his people and destroy all of his plans. God does not let that happen. The hero in this story is God. The power in this story is God. That he would meet the broken people right where we are and walk through the disaster that we created for ourselves without even being asked that he would step into our lives and he would bless our messes and he would keep his promises. And the hero in your story is God. I'm telling you, he'll do it for you too. No matter what you brought into this place today that maybe makes you feel dirty, you can leave this place feeling clean because Jesus, he took it all to the cross and he did it for you.